Well, it's good to see you all. I hope you're having a good uh, entrance or beginning of this Christmas season. I, if you haven't had a chance to be a part of the Christmas Cafe, tonight's the last showing. You do not want to miss it. It's going to be an awesome uh, conclusion. Forgive me if I glance down a bit here. There's normally a little walkway here, and so if I'm kind of teetering here, uh, you'll understand why. Uh, well, it's good to, good to be together this morning. We're having just a little mini-series for the next couple of weeks here, just talking about Christmas, and we've titled the series Simply Christmas, kind of the idea of going back to the basics. And I was thinking in terms of this morning, uh, talking about the relational component to the story of Christmas. One of the things I really enjoy, and my wife and I have, my wife and I have had a lot of opportunity to do this, is experiencing different cultures through travel and seeing kind of how different people do things, how they respond to things, how it's always fascinating to think when you go on a trip somewhere else to how they're kind of doing their thing their way. And here on this side of the planet, we're doing our thing our way. And I've uh, mentioned before going to Kenya, and that was definitely one of the more influential trips that we've gotten to be on and experiencing that culture and just being just fascinated that that world's happening the same time we're doing our Starbucks and doing our thing here in Southern California. And one of the conversations I had with the gentleman there in Kenya, because we're not just learning about their culture, they're wanting to engage with us and learn about our, our culture. I remember a conversation with this guy and He's asking lots of questions about what's, what's it like living in the United States, and I'm asking him questions, and he's asking me a kind of pause for a second, he wanted to ask a more significant question, kind of asked, he's like, now Scott, with his Kenyan accent, and I can't do that, but uh, he's like, Scott, t- tell me, are American families like what I see on Jerry Springer? I was like, oh, shoot. I was like, come to find out, they just had a couple limited uh, channels they could pick up, and that was a prime show at the time, and that was their conclusion as to what American families were like, is uh, all the relational drama. I don't even know if that show's still on, but that was the picture that he had captured. And I was thinking, I was like, man, I wonder how many in the world think that's what American families are like I think there's something to that. I think there's something that each one of us and why a show like that can exist. Each one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, to some degree, we're, we're drawn to relational drama. True confession, right? We're all kind of fascinated at the, at the ideas of the things, the, the different crises that families experience. I had a unique opportunity this past Monday on my day off to go with some friends down for the the filming of the Dr. Phil show. I don't know if anyone watches this guy. Uh, I like his haircut, but uh, interesting show he has. And uh, watching that and just sitting and they had a, a family that was kind of uh, the focused guest there and the, the, the opportunity to kind of explore the different challenges they're face, they are facing. And you can see uh, this is my first step towards stardom. The back of my head, I'm pretty sure, is going to receive a lot of notoriety. Uh, see how it kind of matches his? But, uh, but anyway, at the, at the show, I was watching as they were interacting with the guests that they had and inter- watching uh, the questions that were being asked. I, I took a second, paused, and looked around the room, and everybody was just glued to this story that was being told. They were just on the edge of their seat. What's going to happen next? Is, is the daughter going to keep doing drugs? Are they going to, is the father going to keep supporting her habit financially? What's going to happen? See, we're, we're drawn to relational drama. And the truth is, I would propose, one of the reasons we're drawn to it is maybe it helps us feel a little bit better about our own, maybe. Or maybe it's just that we can relate with it because the part of the human experience is 
that you can't navigate through this life without some degree of relational chaos. And that's why it's so fascinating as we look at the Christmas story this morning to see that that's what they, they were drawn to at that time. We can relate with the drama that we see in the Christmas story because God coming down to earth and being a part of, an, of a family is that something that was possible without some degree of drama. Let me pray before we dive into this story this morning. Dear God, we thank you this morning that this story that Mary and Joseph and everyone involved went through is something we can still, a couple thousand years later, relate with because there's a lot of crisis of belief. There's a lot of crisis of what to do next. I pray that, God, you would teach us from this story, that we'd have a, a clearer glimpse of what that was like for God to come down and be with us. What was that like? We invite you here now to teach us in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you wouldn't mind turning with me, it's going to be a lot more helpful if you have a Bible in front of you. We're in Matthew 1, looking at verses 18 to 25 this morning. And this is probably, for many of you, a very familiar passage, hopefully taking a little different slant or look at it this morning. Uh, starting in verse 18, the account of the birth. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and, a, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, let's pause there, talk through that a little bit. This is a beginning an intro, intro to the, the story of that, that we celebrate every year around this time. You notice one of the words used there is betrothed. And a lot of you, if you've heard this before, you've heard that explanation that the marriage in that time was broken into two pieces. The betrothal, which was a little different than being engaged today, where in that season, in that time, that they had two stages of marriage. The first stage was betrothal. That was the somewhat engagement period. And then the ceremony, which was called hoopa. That's kind of fun. Say that to your neighbor right now. Hoopa. I think that's better than the word ceremony. In fact, I propose we change it. So we're, they had the ceremony. They had the, a lot of hoopa going on. And, uh, and marriages, another unique thing at that time you might be aware of, was that they were arranged marriages. They were arranged marriages. That means that the parents chose who the kids were going to marry, in most cases, without the input of the children. Now, as a vote of hands here, who thinks that's a good idea? Now, wait a second. So, <laughs> some, some parents are all, all for that. But think about this for a second. I was wrestling through that for a second here this week, thinking through that, the stress that that would be trying to pick someone. You didn't want to be on your child's, like, anger bitter list for the rest of your life how could they do that to me you know like that would have been a stressful decision trying to choose the right partner for your child some of you are still like no i'd still vote for that because i know who they're gonna pick and uh and so think about that in that term what a, a stressful thing forget about being good so that santa will bring you good gifts they want to be good so mom and dad don't pick a crazy spouse like that 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 would have been the mentality at that time a really stressful period so here in the betrothal, that was a contract 
that was made between two sets of parents, and that contract was sealed by a payment as a, with a, what was called a mohar, not Mopar for car fans, but a mohar was exchanged as a, as a gift from the groom's parents to the bride's parents. I support this idea of being a father of two daughters. But this idea and what happened there is this was the beginning of a binding contract. Once someone was betrothed, once this exchange had happened, they were as good as married. Still, there would have been needed a divorce to separate that person during that engagement period. But that time of betrothal would last as much as a period of a year. And during that time, where they're still considered married, they really didn't have much social contact between the, the man and the woman during that entire year. And so when it says in the text, before they came together, most likely that was a literal description of, hey, they, they weren't even allowed to intermix or hang out, flee temptation idea there. So this is the time where the drama is introduced into the relationship. Who can point to what the drama is? What's the drama? Simple couple words. Mary is found to be with child. In other words, she's pregnant. Dun, 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 dun. Can you imagine? Like that, that finding out that news, like probably didn't go very well in the explanation where she's explaining to Joseph, I know I'm pregnant, but I have no idea who it is. Like, or actually, at that point, she had a better idea, but you can't imagine. Joseph's response to that news. Joseph isn't stupid. He understands how babies are made. He's, not, he, he's like, wait a second. I understand this about babies, and I wasn't a part of that process. So my question for us, maybe Dr. Phil could have helped with this question, but what would you do? Would you marry a pregnant fiancé who you don't know who the father is? Pretty tough choice, right? Would you move forward with that marriage? Would you proceed and be like, oh, let's just pretend like that's not a part of it? No, it was one of those things that demanded a response. And there was a lot at stake in that day and time. In fact, what was at stake is if he were to turn her into the authorities, if you will, like this was a life and death situation. Author John Corson says, she would have been taken to the town square and stood in a box of manure and stones thrown at her until she fell face down into the box dead. Can you imagine? There's a lot at stake here. You find that out. This is, this is, this is news that there, there was someone's life on the line here because of that. Founded all the way back with the Levitical law in Deuteronomy 22:23. This was part of that culture. What would he do? What should he do? Can you imagine wrestling through that in your mind, trying to determine that? Even going into this Christmas season, I imagine in a room this size, we have our own relational drama, our own things that we're wrestling through, our own stuff, our own things that, our own crossroads that we're at, the own, our own things that we're trying to solve in our own minds. You think about it, before God intervened, Joseph was only left with the information that he had before him, a tough choice to make. Love the invitation that we have from God in these points of, of, of conflict. James 1.5 says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. He wants to be involved with our conflict, with our drama. He wants to give wisdom. 
How does he choose, how does, how does he choose to respond to this on his own? Look what it says that, that Joseph had resolved to divorce her quietly. Had resolved to divorce her quietly. You see, he obviously cared about her because he didn't want harm to come upon her. He cared about her. So he decided, you know what? I'm going to divorce her quietly. That was at least buying her some time. No guarantee of what would start to play out as her belly got larger. But this was a serious crossroad that Joseph was in. This needed divine explanation. Take a look as we continue in verse 20 as God chooses to intervene. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. One thing I've had the privilege to observe over a number of years in ministry now is the way how often God takes something that seems destined to derail and puts it back on track. I can imagine John can attest to this, just the privilege over years and years, whether it's relational between a, a married couple, which seemed like it was a doomed and headed to divorce, God takes that, intervenes, puts it back on track. Whether it's a prodigal child, whether it's a, a, a wayward son, or wh whatever it would be, a relational sibling issue, how God takes things that seem destined to derail and puts them back on track. I love it. At the same time that Jesus was making his grand entrance, he was also stretching Joseph's trust muscles. Think about that. Think about that would need to be, be, be stretched. He would need to have a commitment to what the, who this baby was in his stomach if he was going to uh, endure all the ridicule that was to come. He needed to be stretched. He was needed to come to a crossroad to decide who this baby was. There are some questions that he needed to have answered. Think about yourself in that situation. You find out your fiance is pregnant. What would some questions that you would need to have answered in order to move forward with the marriage? Think about the, the first one. It's probably the most simple. Who's the father of this baby, right? Like put yourself in that position. You'd want to know who the father is. That was the, the first question that came to mind as I was thinking through this. I'm like, I'd want to know who the dad was before I move forward with this. And he answers that through an angel. What does the angel tell him who the father was? He says, listen, the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Wait a second. There's not another man involved. First, there must have been a little bit of a exhale. You're like, all right, that's, that's good news. But what do you mean the Holy Spirit conceived this baby. What is that? This is going apart from the other billions of babies born on this planet. This is playing outside of the parameters of, of, of procreation. What do you mean the Holy Spirit created a baby? What, is that, what does that involve? How does that work? How can we explain that? It's still a mystery that we can't explain. The Holy Spirit created a baby in Mary's womb independent of man. But if you think about it, that doesn't take any more trust than does creation, right? When you're playing with a God that speaks things into existence, 
makes a universe from nothing, the, the, you, you know, the, that ability to speak something into existence opens all kinds of options, right? And so this would be within the realm of those options. God creating a baby. Mary wasn't going to be a traditional mother. She was more of a host, if you will, not an intermingling of her sin nature. Joseph would only be a foster father. So the answer to who the dad is is solved right there, but he's left with a crisis as to whether or not to believe that. But wait a second. Then the next question is, if God, if the Holy Spirit is the father, then who is this baby? Can you imagine? You're like, wait a second. Okay, if the Holy Spirit created this baby, then who is this baby? The answer comes, I believe, in two parts in this section that we just read, both attached to the name that's to be given to this baby. Think about the first name that's mentioned. The first name points to, to what he will do. The second name points to who he is. The first name that's mentioned, the first name is mentioned what? Jesus, a name we're all familiar with. Central to its meaning of the name Jesus is Jehovah will save. Jehovah will save. Do you think that's a, a name that's fitting for this baby? Is that, is that fitting? You ever meet somebody that their name just doesn't make sense to who they are? Like I, I, I come across people sometimes like a, a big guy and their name's tiny. You're like, what are you talking about? Like it doesn't, doesn't work. Like there's, there's certain names that just don't fit with a person. My wife and I were on a, a trip to Hawaii some years back for our anniversary. It was an amazing trip. We got to go with another couple. It was a blast. And on that trip, at the end of a long day of snorkeling, we ended up back at the hotel or uh, condo timeshare thing we were staying at. And we were in the, in the hot tub, and there was some kids playing around. And one younger girl, probably 10 or 12, came over and started talking to us. And uh, it didn't take very long of talking with her that she had some special needs and uh, interesting dialogue. And with her, I, I, asked the, I asked the girl, I said, well, what, what's your name? I don't remember it still now, but, but she, after she told me her name, she, she asked, well, what's your name? I was like, well, my name's Scott. She paused for a second. She's like, no. I'm like, yeah. And uh, she's like, no, your name's Big Bubba. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, what do you mean my name's Big Bubba? Come on, work with me here. I'm, do, I'm doing the sit-ups. Like, and, uh, and, and, and it was one of those funny encounters where clearly to her, the name Scott didn't work with me. It was better fit was Big Bubba. And uh, I'm not sure quite why I'm sharing that with you. Um, but, but that's grown to be a family nickname, unfortunately, uh, with my kids. And, uh, and so here's this name that, that, that didn't seem to fit for her, but in honesty, you think about this name that's given to this baby that's about to be born, the name Jesus does actually fit. Because why? He is the Jehovah that will save. He is the one that will rescue us from our sins. It's a fitting name. Then what's the other name that's given? How, how, how do you determine who this baby was? The second one is one that had been predicted for thousands of years, seen all the way back in Isaiah 7.14. That's what this verse is quoting there. Look at the name that's quoted. Emmanuel, what does it say that it means? God with us. Not God the Father, but another third of the Trinity. God the Son was coming to be with us. You see, the Trinity includes three beings, the, the, the three co-equal, co-eternal beings that coexist. That's a lot of co's together, but that's the, the Trinity is that. 
as part of the Trinity, Jesus existed long before this manger scene. A lot of people are like, oh yeah, well, Jesus came on the scene. And you're like, no, actually he was a, he's been around. In fact, even Jesus himself explained when, in John 8, 58, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Same word used that God as he introduced himself to Moses. I am, I am, existed, part of the Trinity. So here, as part of the Trinity, he's always existed, but this was his first, this was his grand entrance as a baby. You see, this decision as to who we decide, not just for us, but also for Joseph to decide who this baby was, was a critical one. You see, because if Jesus is not God, then we still haven't had God revealed to us. We still don't know. We're still left to guess and to ponder and and human attempts at solving this. We still haven't had God revealed if Jesus wasn't God. If Jesus isn't God, then honestly, think about this, then this was a cruel death for a poor, innocent carpenter. If Jesus wasn't God, why are we still celebrating it 2,000 plus years later? If Jesus is not God, then really, there's no hope for our salvation. There's no sacrifice that's been paid. I'm not qualified to hang on a cross on behalf of your sins. The only one qualified was God in an earth suit, God in the flesh coming down, living the perfect life, the perfect example, dying with a a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Now and then, the, the, the truth is, now and then, each one of us is forced to decide who was that baby. Who was the baby in, in, in Mary's stomach? Joseph had to wake up and make that decision. We're still forced. We're at an impasse, if you think about it. You can't really move forward, and you can't move backward without deciding who was that baby. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you like feel like, man, I'm stuck here. I can't really move forward. I can't, can't go back. It was funny interacting with my in-laws that are in town. We're, we're talking about a, one of those moments they had just in the past week. They drove down from Vancouver, uh, which is a, sp- supposed to be a scenic drive, but they came in the middle of these flash floods, driving through, driving through. They ended up spending the night at a hotel. I'm not sure what, where they're at actually in that trip, but they were telling the story of what happened at the hotel. In the middle of the, real early in the morning, they had set their, their alarm to get an early start on the road trip for the next day. I think this is what older folks do. Uh, and so, uh, but they got an early start. The alarm, alarm went off uh, and they said it was still dark out. They started getting ready, started getting their shoes on, started getting ready. Just so happened, that's when the electricity went out. And they're like, oh man, it's still pitch black outside. It's pitch black in our room. They had this bright idea. They knew that they had a flashlight in their car that would really help this getting ready process go a lot more smoothly. So they both uh, kind of dis, uh, still disheveled from just waking up or heading out to the car. Uh, I got permission from Jerry to mention the fact that the teeth still weren't in. And, uh, and so they're going down, gla- glasses aren't in, uh, teeth are missing. They're standing there. They get to the side of the, 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 the car. They're, they're, they're waiting to get in. They're like, Oh shoot, we forgot the car keys. Can't, we, can't, we can't move forward, we can't get the flashlight without the car keys. I guess we gotta go back up to the room to get the car, car keys. 
How, there's these neat little tricks they have, these little key cards nowadays. Have you guys noticed those before? How, are those, how do those operate? What's an important component? Electricity. It's pouring rain outside. They're stuck in between the car and the hotel room. They've got the key card. They have no electricity. What do you do when no glasses, no teeth? No, what, what, what's, what do you do in that, in that scenario? It's, a, it's an impasse. They can't move forward. So Jerry, it was so cool. He's telling this story. Uh, he's kind of let me pick on him here. Uh, he's telling this story. He's standing there at the thing. He's like, he sticks the card in. Nothing. Sticks it in again. Nothing. He's like, he said, I threw up a little prayer. I was like, dear Lord, just let me, or dear Lord, just let me, <laughs> just, just, just let me in back into this room. Just let me back in. Third time, beep, lets him in. Gets his keys back on the road. It was one of those like Christmas miracles, right? <laughs> and so here in this story, I heard a woo. <laughs> Here in this story, one of those impasses, it kind of ties in. It kind of was an excuse for me to tell that story. But the idea of an impasse where you're like, man, I can't really move forward. I can't really move backward. You're forced to decide what to do in that situation. That's where Joseph was. He had to decide in this impasse, who do I believe is that baby in her stomach? Who is it? What do people say today? How, how, do, how do people choose? How, how do people respond to that choice that they have to make? If you think about it, most find the idea of God being amongst us a little too much to handle. They'd rather try to put that idea on the shelf. A lot of men in our church are going through this discipleship book right now, and one of the authors of one of the articles in there wrote an interesting quote describing this. Daryl Johnson says, the holy God constitutes a threat to humans. So we either ignore him or try to suppress him. It's the way our psyche deals with trauma. It's an interesting quote there. Think about that. How, how, is, how is God a threat? Think about it for a second. He's a threat to our autonomy. In other words, when we realize that God is with us, we can no longer go on living as self-gods, as if we're the final authority without accountability or consequence. We can't go on operating like that. Once you recognize that there's a God and he's come to be with us, you can't go on living as if it's just you playing the role of self-god. It's a threat to that. He's also a threat not just a threat to that, he's also a threat to our self-righteousness, the idea that we're, that we're moral and we're good. In the presence of such absolute purity, our claims of moral excellence are shallow. I love that quote also by Daryl Johnson. He points out the fact of all the different encounters that people had with God in Scripture, all the different times that God revealed himself to someone, it always came with a response of, wait a second, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I'm, I, I, I fall short. Think through a few of those. Isaiah, his response when exposed to Almighty God, woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of what? Unclean lips. Or Job simply just stating, I am unworthy. 
Or how about Habakkuk? I like his response. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bone and my legs trembled. His response, he could barely stand before Almighty God. In the presence of God, we're very aware of the gulf that separates us, that exists between us and a perfect God. His holiness exposes our sinfulness. But the funny thing is, there's also something about being exposed to God when, we, when he reveals himself to us, when he comes. There's something strangely attractive about him as well. Something strangely irresistible. We can't explain why we're drawn to him. He's the, he's the drink that we've thirsted for our entire lives. Why are we so drawn to this perfect, holy God? There's a crisis that comes just by the introduction of him, if you think about it. The amazing tension between being, whoa, I need to hide, and wow, I'm drawn to you. That's the tension that can only be solved by grace. That's the tension as to why it was so necessary that this baby would come. It was necessary to solve that tension. The grace was needed. That's why Jesus came. How will Joseph respond to this tension? Look in verse 24 as we wrap up. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I love this. I find it interesting that there's nowhere in Scripture where Joseph's words are ever recorded, but only his actions. He didn't speak he just acted in obedience. Wouldn't that be nice for someone to say that of ourselves? They don't talk much. They, they're just obedient. They just follow the Lord. So what does it say that he did? It says that he took Mary as his wife. says that he knew her not. says that when the baby was born, he called that baby by the appropriate name, the rescuer, Jesus he made the choice. He recognized when he came to this crossroad, he recognized that this baby that was in her stomach was actually who the angel said it was, was actually what the prophet Isaiah had forecasted and predicted thousands of years earlier, was actually God with us. Now the question is, a couple thousand years later, still every single person on this planet with that same crisis of belief, who was that baby? Who do you believe it was? It changes how you go into this Christmas season. I'll tell you what, if you're still kind of like, yeah, it's kind of a nice thing we do every, every year, every 12 months, it's a great time to exchange gifts, you know, and it's a little stressful, credit card bill's high. Like if, if that's it for Christmas, man, you're missing it. But if it actually is God, Almighty God, our, or, or to, I'm in a men's uh, Bible study group. We get together in the early mornings on Saturdays, and we were just going through this week in this discipleship book, we're going through this account and revelations of, of what it's like in the throne room, what it's going to be like to actually be ex revealed and finally face-to-face -face with God in the, the, His majesty and the magnificent scene that's described in Revelation. We're like, whoa, that's going to be awesome. Like there's some, you're like, I don't know if I want to be there, but I really do, and like that same crisis. But you see, when you see that baby as God with us, man, you're drawn to that idea. This Christmas, my hope and my prayer is that we've made that choice, same choice that Joseph made, to embrace who 
Jesus Christ is. Changes everything, especially in this season. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this text and the, the drama that Joseph and Mary endured in the Christmas story, the tension that was clearly there, the choices that they were forced to make, the conclusions that he had to make. God, I thank you for learning from that, from experiencing that through story. Thank you for your word. Thank you that this isn't just a, a fun story we're talking about, but this is an, an account of history and what happened, the account of God, you as creator God coming down to be with us. We celebrate that. I pray as we go into the remainder of this season, every time we're singing carols, every time we're opening gifts, that we are reminded of that's the purpose, that's the reason we get together, that's the reason we sing and cheer, is the birth of God in the flesh, Emmanuel. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. That's the invitation this Christmas. Give him all the glory. Let's celebrate him. Amen. I'm a little concerned, I'll be honest. I already got a text saying, good job, Big Bubba. I'm just saying, I'm a little concerned. Have a great Christmas. God bless you.